Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. A map of Australia shows you place names with different origins. Some are First Nations words, others are European hand-me-downs. Some Aboriginal names are so iconic, like Noosa or Wollongong, that we don't even think about it. But often these First Nations names encapsulate a rich history in just one word, a story, a spirit. But over two centuries of displacement, many of these names have sadly been lost or erased, along with the languages and the people who originally spoke them. You can read about this country's brutal history on a map through its place names. But some names are coming back. Uluru was only called Ayers Rock for a brief moment in its history. We now know it by its true Pijinjara name. And there's a growing push for more of Australia's old names to be brought back, particularly when the story their new name tells is one of hate and violence. Names are changing, and in the process we're learning about the true history of this country. If you close your eyes and you listen and maybe try and use your senses... You, you smell something familiar, and that's the wetness, the, the water, and it's what in your mind's eye you would think of as a creek. It's, it's probably uh, small, it's fragile, it's, it's meandering, curvy, up, up and down. For us as Jar Jar it's special, like all creeks, streams, rivers, places. It has a form of identity, so I, I think... It's beautiful. Rodney Carter is a Jaja Warung man from central Victoria. He's talking about a stream on his people's country, which, since the 1840s, has been called Jim Crow Creek. Jim Crow has hugely racist connotations in the American South. It became shorthand for the racist system of segregation that lasted up until the 1960s in the United States. Rodney has long been unhappy about this name and what he says it does to the creek itself. It's been incarcerated. It's been suffocated, it's been imposed upon, and maybe for my people it's easily said because this is the idea of oppression, displacement, colonisation. Hepburn Shire Council, through which the creek flows, is looking at changing the name. A process of community consultation is going on right now. Rodney wants the new name to be the Jaja Warung phrase Lani Baramal Yaluk, which means home of the Emu Creek then what we're doing is we're freeing it by placing language back into country, uh, acknowledging its presence in landscape. And I also think when we speak the language at country, a lot of our mobs say you sing country and you can through verse, but you can also quite easily speak to country by just saying its name. So for our creek here, the Lani, Baramal, Yaluk, the home of the Emu Creek, the waters of the Emu, that's its name. So I respect it and I'll call it by its name. Gari is actually the name of one of our sky spirits who came down and helped create Butchil Country. So we have uh, a god, Biral. Biral sent down uh, Yindingi to help create the earth and Yindingi brought Gari, this beautiful sky spirit, down with him. And when they had created the mainland and the water, she looked around and thought it was the most beautiful place she'd ever seen and she begged to stay. That's Rose Barrowcliffe, a butcher woman whose ancestral homeland is around Harvey Bay in Queensland and includes the world's largest sand island. You might know it as Fraser Island. Yindingi said, well, if you can only stay 
if he turned her into something else. So um, he got her to go lie down on some rocks out in the water and he turned her into the island. It's our creation story for the island for us. It's, so it's very inherent in, in our culture and our connection to country, that name. Butchula people have long campaigned against the name Fraser Island and recently their name for the island, Gari, was officially restored by the Queensland government. Fraser Island had been named after Eliza Fraser. So she was the wife of a ship captain back in the early 1800s and they were travelling up the east coast of Australia and ran aground and ended up as castaways effectively on Gurry or what became known as Fraser Island. Eliza was taken by Butchula people on the island and stayed with them for a few weeks as they transferred her to safety. Eliza Fraser's version of that story was very different about how, you know, basically she was treated very badly and and she went on to uh, sell that story over and over again throughout the colonial world and, and made a lot of money out of painting Butchula people in this horrible light. When she got home, she described her time on the island as a fate worse than death and her butchula hosts as cannibals. There's little chance she'd have survived without them, but because of her lies, a narrative of the savagery of Indigenous people spread around the colonial world, leading to death and dispossession. So it was really important to elders to not have her recognised on our homeland and also because she was only really there for a few weeks. So... She was there on the island for a few weeks, had this terrible interaction, became very famous for it. But it's, it's not what the island is about for Butchula people. Rodney Carter says his people were robbed of the ability to speak their language. Returning his people's language to country is an important part of connecting to it. In returning the creek's identity, the Jajawarung themselves are having their identity returned. If we were at the creek, Today, there's no reason why we can't actually almost sing to the creek as Lani Baramul you look and to connect to the emotion that can sit embedded in the sound as we speak. And in the true sense, that's what I believe song is. It's the way that we vocalise, craft, um, the saying of the words that they become somewhat musical. And I think that's what we, we see when people are mindful about actually looking at the water and seeing beyond the water and how does the light glisten on the water, what floats upon the water, what are the vortices underneath the water that are creating the the meandering, what are the insects, the birds, the amphibians, the reptiles that connect uh, with the water. So now that's country. So we can speak and sing, but then what it's actually doing, it's speaking back to us and it's singing back to us. We just need to, to use our senses to connect with that. Lani Baramul Yaluk and Gari are just a couple of examples. But there are campaigns all across Australia looking at our place names and trying to reintroduce language to country. Uh, we, we have places, you know, where we, we go past and we don't, we don't like the feeling that it gives off. And then years later, you'll find out, oh, that's where one of the massacres were. And this is my generation, you know, coming on later. So it, it, it's very important to take the names off those massacre sites and rename them. 
I'm Melinda Holden. I'm a Tarabalang woman on my father's side and also on my mother's side. I am a Wagamaymo. Melinda's country is up around Bundaberg and Rockhampton in Queensland. She works for First Languages Australia and has identified sites around that area which she thinks are offensive and ought to be renamed. Well, here in Bundaberg, we have a place called Paddy's Island. My family used to live um, on the fringe up at Tentitha. Every Sunday, all of our little households used to walk about five miles down to the river, which was Paddy's Island. And that was a place for us to sit down and meet as, as the whole group and, you know, everybody have a good time and that. But there was always one other side of the fence that we didn't really go to. I understood years later that that was where the, the actual massacres which had taken place. So I think we have to acknowledge that that's where, where the massacres and, and why they happened. And, and they, they, some of those are documented around, you know, in uh, certain publications. But unless you read the publication, you're not going to know about it. So it needs to be out there in front of people. It needs to be more um, open and honest where these massacre sites are. The Leap near Mackay in Queensland is another place name Melinda reckons should be changed. The story goes that an Aboriginal woman was forced to jump off a cliff with a child in her arms rather than face the guns of the Queensland Native Police who were pursuing her. Names like these are all over the place and cause a lot of pain to First Nations people who have to see them and use them. But Melinda says that most people don't know their history, so renaming a place is a chance to tell the truth about what happened. It is important to lead this country back more towards the traditional owners. And I, I say that because it makes our people a lot more proud of who we are and can relate ourselves to it. But for our non-Indigenous people, it's, it's amazing when they do learn of the different place names and the history around that, they, you find they are really amazed and sometimes shocked but it's also telling the truth about those places. Rodney Carter agrees. There's many, not just bilingual, multilingual societies around the, the world, and what we've had here is something so unique, potentially with over 300 languages spoken on a continent that have been treated as a curiosity and, and, and suppressed, whereas I believe that's what makes us so unique. So why wouldn't you want to learn that, promote it, protect it and ensure that future generations can inherit it because, strangely, everyone else in the world does it but we don't seem to be doing it here. So there's an opportunity, I think, for us to create this new place in the world that's better for all of us. Rose Barrowcliffe says changing a name is a sign of respect. Place names are important for the same reason that people's names are important. You know, it's a sign of respect and particularly for Indigenous people, it's not just a name, it represents so much more. So it's it's a part of recognising Indigenous sovereignty as well. And it's multifaceted in that, um, depending on the place name, you know, some colonial place names are given to honour people who 
might not have really done the, the honourable thing by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and yet we still use their names, even though that name leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. It's about respect, I think, is the long and short of that. My name is Rachel McPhail. I am a Gomery woman. I was raised out on Durable country and I live in Wiradjuri country now, so I've lived out here since 2018. Rachel is speaking to me from the small riverina town of Coolamont, just west of Wagga Wagga, Wiradjuri country. Last year she tried to buy something online and, out of nowhere, decided to whack in Wiradjuri country to see if Australia Post would work out where to send it. They did, and from there she started a campaign to get Australia Post to officially adopt First Nations country names in addresses. She was successful. My Instagram account started blowing up, which was amazing because, you know, that obviously means that there's a lot of people following the campaign. Um, But it also came with a lot of inbox messages from people asking me, like multiple daily messages asking me to help them to find out the traditional place name of where they lived or where they were trying to send their mail to. Rachel says the resources we have on Aboriginal place names aren't good enough. It really became apparent for me, I guess, that there's a real knowledge gap in our resources in Australia because, you know, the the best thing that we kind of have at the moment is the AATSIS map and it's not – there's actually a disclaimer underneath it that you can read They and they acknowledge that it's not accurate. So it was produced by using the Tyndale's map, which is, you know, based on colonisers' records and like possibly – you know, small amounts of consultation with community or community representative groups. But there are quite a few communities that aren't actually represented on the map or whose elders actually disagree with what the name shows on the map. Because the map is so incomplete, Rachel believes it's even more important to consult with elders. So because of that, um, it's, yeah, it's become apparent that we really need that database to be created so that we, I guess, so that we have that accurate record of the traditional place names as per what the elders um, say that the truth is, but also to give the elders that opportunity to have a voice because their truth has never been recorded before. So that's really important as well So from the social justice perspective of things. For Melinda Holden, truth-telling is a huge part of our campaign. So that's why we need to get rid of those Australian names because a lot of those places are named after people who have persisted in the, in the massacres of our people. So it's important that we change that whole system and to be able to tell the truth as well about that country. Rose Barrowcliffe says an attitude of leave the past in the past impedes the healing process. If someone walked into your family house and murdered your family and then, you know, wanted to name your neighbourhood after after that person, you wouldn't accept that and your descendants wouldn't accept that. I think sometimes it's just easier possibly to hold on to, to the place names that people have grown up with and if they've grown up not knowing the dark histories of those names, they might just want to bury their heads in the sand about it. To call a place name, okay, this is something that my Indigenous teachers, my Yanua teachers have taught me. They said to call a place name is a political act because to call it in an Indigenous sense for Yanua 
To call it is to say you know it. You know the inside story that brought it into existence. So a place name is a declaration of knowledge about something. The naming process, that's what language does. It goes through the translational effort and brings it into our human realm and makes it mean something to us. That's Amanda Carney, an anthropologist from Flinders University in South Australia, speaking to me from Melbourne, Boon country. She spent much of the last two decades working with Yanua families in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Names, she tells me, are powerful things. So a place name is a very powerful indicator of meaning, of attachment. Who names places also says something about power. And I think it's interesting that we always think about who names a place. I like to think about what names a place because in an Indigenous knowledge system, Place names are derived of your dreaming ancestors. They put those place names into country. So this is something that does not involve the human. This is something that involves an ancestral presence of great substance and power that puts into place law, and that law contains its name. It's like peeling this onion and you're sort of get these layers and layers of meaning that come with a place name. And in an Indigenous sense, those place names, as I say, are derived of law from the ancestors. In a Western sense, we do things like draw maps and we therefore demarcate the world of possibility. We then put names into it. So then we've delimited what it could be now or ever in the future. And then not long after place naming comes some sort of declaration around ownership. So it's very powerfully shifted then into a sense of possession and control. So there's, there's, multiply, there's multiple ways to configure why we place name, what is the substance of a place name and what's important about it, yeah. She tells me about an atlas the Yanua put together in the early 2000s called Forget About Flinders. When Flinders mapped Yanua country up in what is now the coast of the Northern Territory, he gave those places names, forgetting or not ever considering that these places already had names. In many respects, like when you look at this visual atlas and you look at Indigenous place names when they are mapped out visually for you or when you map out the dreaming, it is absolutely magnificent and it's mind-blowing the depth of knowledge that jumps out of the page. And I actually think this should be a point of intrigue for most Australians because we're not saying, you know, chuck out Matthew Flinders and erase the history, but just for a moment, can we just forget about Flinders and remember that there was something else here and there's something that continues irrespective of these other names. First Nations borders are often diffuse, so Rachel McPhail accepts that it might be difficult to nail down precisely where one country begins and ends in all cases. You know, there were many different areas all around where there's like literally written accounts of different family groups or tribes coming together for celebration, for trade, for economy, you know, lots of different reasons, not just like contesting that land, if you get what I mean. So if we do get this project up and running and as we're going around and consulting with communities, my hope is that we can really keep that positive focus on you know, that kind of conversation because it may come down to a situation where one piece of land is known as two different names and that we might just have to be okay with that. What we're just trying to do is give the elders, you know, that opportunity to record what they believe that that area is. So 
in that sense, there may be elders who have different names for that particular area. Attachment to place names goes two ways, and despite European names being quite recent, connections to them can be strong. Place names conjure up social memories, they make people feel like they belong somewhere, and our identities get tied to them. It's why a name like Coon Island in Lake Macquarie, despite being overtly racist to an outsider, can still see more than half of respondents to a council survey vote to keep the name. The council overruled the community in this case, and it's now called Parita Island, an Awabakal word for a type of oyster found in the area. But there's also the fact that this history is uncomfortable, and some of us don't want to think about it. Amanda Carney again. But I think part of the reason it triggers such a kind of, um, such a visceral response in people is that it's a discomforting reality to think that whatever you know and the place names you live with and if they, you know, it's the ancestors of your longstanding pastoral family in a region, to try and imagine that that is built on a history of displacement, that there's something that sits underneath it that has been crushed or squashed or denied, that's a very discomforting reality for most people who feel quite separate from that past, from that historical period of colonial violence and frontier violence. But I think the reality is is that until that discomfort is perhaps dealt with, it's going to continue to be a, a, a real needle in the side because it the terms on which the nation has named all of these places is on dispossession and displacement. For Rose Barrowcliffe, it's harder for First Nations people to ignore the symbolic violence of a place name. Some people are more open to, to talking about those difficult histories than others. And I think the thing is, for a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we don't really have a choice to not think about those histories. They're part of the histories of our family and, and what have impacted on our family and community for for generations. But for non-Indigenous people, it's easier to say, oh, you know, that's in the past. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Let's just move on. But the reality is until you address things like that, then then you can't move on. Back on Jajawarung country, Rodney Carter is optimistic that changing these names is an opportunity for all of us to learn about our past and to connect with First Nations people and history. Look, there's many things integral to to culture and identity. What always comes up is the first statement around it, language. Language is key to culture and, and I only know best for here in Australia and central Victoria. We're screaming out as a society, climate change, wanting to connect to the natural world. We've got languages here that speak and sing to country. So if we learn that, we learn what that means, we learn to feel it, I I think we're resetting an ancient journey that began many, many thousands of years ago here and we're going to let it continue. Rodney Carter there reckons we've got a great opportunity to learn a lot about our country's history. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. 
If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. You can follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald on Awabakal land and in Canberra on Ngunnawal and Nambri land. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Annie Lewis. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.